Articles of Faith is a weekly interview show featuring scholars and writers who have written about the doctrines and teachings of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Articles of Faith is a production of Fair Mormon and is hosted by Nick Galetti. This episode's guest is Darla Isaacson. Darla Isaacson learned about adversity at an early age. She received life-threatening third-degree burns as a child and has had health challenges all her life as a result. She served a full-time mission to Southern California, graduated as a valedictorian from Utah State University, married a return missionary in the temple, gave birth to five healthy sons, and has been a professional writer, editor, and speaker for decades. For Darla, life didn't turn out as she planned. Divorce, remarriage, a blended family that didn't blend well, serious car accidents, seven preemie grandchildren, and ongoing health challenges were only prelude to her biggest heartbreak, the losing a son to depression, alcohol, and drugs, then to suicide. In 2001, she became a regular columnist for Meridian Magazine Online, and has posted close to 300 articles. In 2009, she released her book titled, Trust God No Matter What. And in 2010, the book called, After My Son's Suicide, An LDS Mother Finds Comfort in Christ's Strength to Go On. You can learn more about them at her website, DarlaIsaacson.com. Welcome, Darla. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you for coming in. And boy, your your biography really sets up a it almost sounds like a, more than a Greek tragedy. There's just so many downfalls and pitfalls in your life. And and so I guess the fundamental question might be, what keeps you going now? What keeps you writing 300 articles? That seems like a, <laughs> seems like a lot. The, the more trials and interesting things you have happen, the more you have to learn and the more you have to write about. <laughs> there you go. I've, I've always felt like there's a formula with my life. It was learn, write, share. And and everything that happens to me, I'm learning, and I'm and I have a great need to share what I think has really helped me. Yeah, three hundred articles—that's a lot of learning. Mm-hmm. So, why why Meridian Magazine? Why why is that the outlet that you uh, chose that, to go with? That turned out to be a perfect match for me because it is a, a venue for faithful Latter Day Saints, and and yet they. They kind of push the envelope. There's a lot of things that they publish that wouldn't be in the Enzyme, for instance, but it's not because it's not within guidelines of what it would be faithful. It's, it's because they explore and, and are open to many ideas. And I love the fact that I can send an article in on Tuesday and see it online on Friday, and it gets to tens of thousands of people. There's there's no better fun for a writer than that. Yeah, Never mind, we don't turnaround. get paid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We don't get paid, of course, but but the, uh, the great satisfaction is is the responses we get from the readers and knowing that we're reaching people. You've been a writer in a lot of other ways. What are some of the other things that you've written and spoken about? Well, I started, it, it's kind of interesting, I, I, besides the fact that I wrote a lot when I was younger, my first professional project was a parenting book that I co-offered with my sister, and we were both 
heavy into parenting and wanting to know the how-tos. We said, okay, we know we're supposed to teach our children the gospel. Okay, how do you do that? And you have all these wiggly little creatures that don't really want to sit and listen. How do you teach them? And so we interviewed 100 different families and got a lot of how-tos and put them together in a very effective book that was actually in bookstores for 13 years. Wow. And I did a lot of speaking on those topics that we had in the book. Then real life kind of settled in, and I started uh, speaking and writing about how to slay your dragons of discouragement and things like that. So I, I, I have had a, a very interesting turn in, in the kinds of things that I write about because yeah. I, I, I was so idealistic in my youth that it, I just uh, never would have guessed what life was really going to throw at me. But it's, <laughs> it's been a journey, and, and I've learned so much that I wouldn't have otherwise Well, we're here today to talk about your book primarily after my son's suicide, but uh, you've also written a, and this is primarily an LDS text, right? but you've also written it as a kind of a non-LDS where you stripped out some of those Mormon references. That was one of the biggest challenges, the most interesting things I've ever done. What was it called again? Um, the, The new book just released this year is called Finding Hope While Grieving Suicide, and the subtitle is Opening Your Heart to the Healing Only God Can Give. Um, It became clear to me, and I was asked by a publisher initially, which I ended up not going with, but they asked me to do this because in the suicide field there are literally dozens, maybe hundreds of books coming from a psychological standpoint, coming from every kind of... A treatment, a therapy. A treatment you can imagine and and personal experience. There's not one that was based on the Bible and God and, and finding spiritual healing, which to me was it. I mean, it was the most basic, most foundational thing. And so this uh, Christian publisher wanted that Bible-based Christian looks look to Christ's thing. And at first I said, hey, you know, this book is strictly based on LDS scriptures, um, quotes from the prophet, LDS doctrine. How in the world are you going to take that, make it into a general market book? But I got kind of a witness that I was supposed to do it. So uh, right after my LDS book came out, I dived into that project and ended up taking four years because I, in the meantime, determined that that was not the right publisher for me and uh, and actually ended up redoing the book completely from what they had wanted because I didn't like their title or cover or kind of some of the restrictions that they were putting on me. But when I uh, got it published and, and um, released it at the first of this year, I felt amazingly satisfied that I'd been able to document LDS doctrine outside of Mormondom. And it was a it was a great experience. It just deepened my faith in even more because truth is truth and it's out there. It's all over the place. Yeah. Well let's get into your story then. Your story is is both tragic and triumphant. Uh, from when I've read it would be a it would be almost a disservice to try and diminish the tragedy without simultaneously diminishing the triumph over that tragedy. So as we go forward in discussing this subject, clearly a very heavy, oftentimes heart-wrenching subject even just to hear about, please introduce to us the context of the discussion today through the telling of your story of your son, Brian. I'm having a little hard time knowing how much to tell you about this. I'll try and summarize it as quickly as possible. 
but uh, my son Brian was the second of five sons, and from the time he was a little boy, he was he was just a compassionate little soul. By the time he was seven, I had these five little creatures that I was trying to mother, and I was very overwhelmed a lot of the time. And uh, once in a while, I'd just go in the bedroom and cry. And it was always Brian that would come in and pat me and say, what's the matter, Mommy? You're going to be okay, you know. And he was just a, he was just a sweet, compassionate boy and, um, and, and kind of one of those that didn't uh, state his needs because he could assess the situation that I was so busy and so stressed that I just couldn't cover all the bases. So we kind of sat back and, and I didn't really know what, what was going on with him. Uh, I found out later. And when he was 14, he bugged the restaurant that, that was about two blocks from our house for a job because his dad was in a, a, a plane crash and was critically injured and not able to work for a couple of years. And he was determined he was going to do his part and pay some of the expenses because we were having a, a rough time. And, and so he just went over there and said, I know I'm only 14, but man, I'm a good worker. You try me out and you'll see. Well, they hired him and he did great. And he ended up being a cook over there, which looked like a good thing. But it ended up not being a good thing because some of the people he worked with pulled him into the drug scene and he got hooked on marijuana. And when he was 16 years old... Um, this was before we knew about the drugs, although we'd been a little antsy about some of the signs we were seeing. But he suddenly just said he wasn't going to church anymore. And this is a boy that was raised in our family where we always went to church, no matter every activity, every church meeting, unless we were sick. That was just the way it was. And so we, we were just mystified. But he, he was big enough that when he made that decision, he made it stick. And he did not go back to church. And, and then I became very alarmed at some of the things I was seeing in his behavior. And I, I got him to go with me to have an interview at, at the best drug rehab center I knew about. And they verified the fact that he was indeed on marijuana. And I was ready to mortgage the house, do whatever it took to, to get the treatment he might need. And he, he said, Mom, I can do this on my own. I know I can quit. And so we kind of had an agreement, and the counselor said, well, this might work because it's marijuana. If it was any other kind of drug, I'd say forget it, you know. But he hadn't been on it that long, and he did quit on his own. And, and for the rest of the time he was in our home, submitted to monthly drug testing so that we knew that he was drug-free. So he graduated from high school joined the Marines, hated it, got re a medical release for a knee injury, which he was delighted about. <laughs> and uh, he said they were trying to see steal his soul. And he was a very sensitive person. And, and, yeah. and, and, and it just didn't match up, although he was very, very, he looked like a Marine, you know, tall, muscly, handsome guy. Uh, but he came home and never lived with us again. He was out on his own by then. He was... 18 and and uh, almost 19 and and then he just started pulling further and further away from the family coming to fewer and fewer family events and not returning phone calls and and making it hard to even get him to be home so we could bring him gifts and things like that and uh, I became more and more concerned about what was going on in his life but really had I knew where he lived but 
but I knew I knew that I couldn't do anything um, to make him, you know, come back into the family fold. And then um, when he was 26 years old, one day out of the blue, I got this phone call, and he said, "Mom, I'm I really apologize for." for pushing you away. Can you come right away? I need to talk to you. So, of course, I dropped everything, jumped in the car. 20 minutes later, I was uh, on his doorstep. He let me in, and and we just held each other and cried. I knew he was in trouble, and I didn't know what was going on. But we sat down and talked, and he told me that he had walked away from all his employment that he was suicidal, that he that he recognized he needed help, and that he was willing to come home and and let me help him get the help that he needed. Well, I immediately called our our dearest, favorite, most spiritual counselor and got him an appointment within two hours. So we had that time to talk. And as we talked more, this son of mine told me that he had first tried to kill himself when he was fifteen, mm. and it blew me away. I had no way to process that. It was so different than the reality that, that was in my head of how I thought things were. And, um, and it was, it was a, a very distressing, distressing thing to me. This counselor was wonderful with him, and we took him home. And uh, as we got him settled in the next day, um, just, just trying to process all this, it was just like having to realign all my perceptions and I just got this raging headache and I had to go lie down. And this son of mine got a, a chair, came and sat at the end of the bed, and he was a licensed sports massage therapist, and he sat and massaged my feet and reassured me with kind words. And I just thought, this is a miracle. For all these years, I've just been yearning to uh, minister to him, and here he is ministering to me. And in looking back in retrospect, I just feel like that was the most amazing um, indication of his real character because even in that horrible frame of mind he was in and, and, uh, and starting to have withdrawal from drugs and the whole thing, here he was that kind to his mother. And I just, I just, I love thinking about that. I just think that was a beautiful scene. In the months that followed, we were just so grateful. The whole family was to get to know Brian as an adult. He he did well with his counseling over a period of uh, somewhat over a year. He he uh, was definitely drug free again. He got his real estate license and and then moved out on his own. And and we had high hopes that he would be okay. But some of the same signs started appearing again, where he was withdrawing and wasn't coming as much to family things and. I, I just had a sinking feeling that things were not okay and that maybe he was back on drugs again and his uh, career things never seemed to work out. His romances never seemed to work out. I just wanted to take a magic wand and make everything all better for Brian. And then on the morning of uh, September 27th, 2004, just coming up 10 years, 10 years here, yeah. uh, then the, I had the awful experience of having three playing plain clothes people um, appear at my door to give me the terrible, dreadful news that Brian was dead by his own hand. They told me that during, sometime during the night that he had slit his wrists and bled to death in the bathtub. So 
So that's where this whole book thing started. Yeah, and that's a really complex story that I'm sure we can't even begin to get all the background on. No, I mean, that's just the surface. Yeah. <laughs> so, so after recounting this experience of having the police come to your home and inform you of, of finding your son having committed suicide, you described what it felt like uh, when you considered yourself at the time. It, it, you wrote this in the book. It says, I, I am one of the walking wounded. I often felt like my heart was literally bleeding. So this is a description for an emotion that others may have felt that included some intense pain, but you also say that you've experienced other tragedies in your life. So I've wondered if what you felt isn't more intense than the way you've described it. Well, that would definitely be true of the initial shock and grief and anguish that I felt. It's, it's impossible to even describe. However, it would not be true about the way I feel now. When I speak of Brian's death now, even though it may sound absolutely off the wall almost, I'm, I'm filled with gratitude for all I've learned about the grace and mercy and love of Christ and and his great plan of redemption, that's what I have learned in a very real way. And I've, I've just uh, seen the fulfillment of so many scriptural promises in my own life, even things like all things work together for good to them that love God. At the time, I thought, how could it be all things? How could this ever work for good? But I have to tell you, it has in many lives. Many lives have been touched and made better in the aftermath of this awful tragedy. And I, I, I kind of, I guess I feel a little bit like the, that oft-quoted elderly man that survived the ordeal of the Martin Handcart Company. And what he said was, we suffered beyond anything you can imagine, but every one of us came through with the absolute knowledge that God lives, for we became acquainted with him in our extremities. Well, I have to say, so have I. And that this, this experience has brought me just this absolute knowledge that, that God lives. And, and I have become acquainted with him through this extremity in ways that, that I just may never have otherwise. So even though this is the last trial I ever would have chosen, of course, uh, Brian's death did motivate a whole decade of learning and growing that has been quite phenomenal for me and the deep spiritual understanding and blessings that I've gained and then have been able to share because for decades I've been a writer. It was the most natural thing in the world to want, again, to, to learn and share and write about what I was experiencing. And, and so, you know, all this, this learning and sharing, I, I just couldn't easily want to wish away. But most importantly, through, through all this learning and through all this spiritual seeking, the Lord truly has healed my heart as evidenced by the fact that I can come and talk to you Absolutely. about this. And, and, be, and, and I have a huge need to share with others that, you know, you can, you can keep living, you can keep growing, you can keep learning. Sometimes, like with my grandchildren, I have some of the happiest experiences I've ever had in my life. And, and so it's not like, you know, one big tragedy like that is going to make it so that you never feel joy again. But that's a very real emotion to people. They feel like, how could I ever 
feel happy again after seeing a loved one die like oh, this. Oh, I think everybody feels that way right after. You just can't imagine that you'll ever be happy again, but but you can be because the Lord heals your heart. Yeah, well, let's let's go into a discussion further now that we kind of know the story a little bit. Let's go into some foundational elements for a discussion on the topic of, again, a very serious subject of, of suicide. So one of the most serious topics that can be discussed is something that we actually do find some official doctrine from the church on the subject. So without going too deep into the doctrines of it, what sources did you look to or what sources can we look to for authoritative information on the subject of suicide? Well, believe me, that was one of the main things I was looking for right after because we we just have such a need to know. And um, the probably the most authoritative printed matter on on this would be M. Russell Ballard's booklet called Suicide, Some Things We Know, Some Things We Don't. So here we have a, an apostle uh, dealing head-on with the subject. It was first printed as an article in the Enzyme and, and then uh, p- published as a booklet and is available at Desert Book. And it, it's extremely comforting. The main message is that we must leave all judgment to the Lord and that He only knows the circumstances, the physical and emotional factors that combine to bring a person to such a, a drastic act and a reminder that God is merciful and kind. And my daughter-in-law gave me that the very first week after Brian died, and it was helpful. You know, that that brings up an interesting point, though. You, you say that she gave it to you the first week. Is that that some people might feel like that's too soon, you know, here, read this and it'll fix you. You know, is that, is that a typical response for people to want that kind of stuff? Well, I have to say that in a lot of ways I'm typical, but in this way I'm probably not. Um, Because I'm a writer and a thinker and one that always wants to learn about everything, the most normal thing on the world for me was to immediately start reading everything I could get my hands on. Because that brought you comfort to know something. Yeah, I wanted to understand. I wanted to. I wanted to get the facts. I wanted to figure this out, and and so I just was reading, reading, reading right from the first week, and it was. It, I found a whole lot more comfort than anything from from uh, reading everything I could find. But I have to say that when it comes to doctrine and all that, I think the major question for those of us that lose someone to suicide is this uh, what later on we're saying the aching question of sin and this person committed a sin they took their own life besides the fact that most of them die with unrepented sins as far as we can see and what's going to happen to them you know there's a, a tremendous amount of concern about about the welfare of their soul and what's going to happen to them and and there's a lot of christian world that believes Man, when you die, that's it. You know, you take your last death. Either you go to heaven or hell, and and that's that's all there is. And most to likely it. hell, right? If you, yeah, if you yeah. And and whoever could could feel any comfort from thinking about that. So, this was the main thing immediately that that I was determined to to find out everything I could. Uh, about Brian's situation over there, because at the time he died, he 
certainly wasn't doing everything he should. He was back on alcohol and drugs. We found marijuana in his bloodstream. He was drinking. He worked at a men's club, which is absolutely not a very moral environment. And and yet here is this great soul that we knew as a, a person that was so kind and so loving and had so many great characteristics. And I could not even begin to to come to the conclusion that there was no hope for this son of mine. There's, I, I wouldn't accept that. And um, because of all the things I, I learned, it, that's the basis of both of my books is there is hope. And, and uh, so think about all the gospel things that we can find to pin hope on. First of all, we have this, the scripture that's very applicable, Doctrine and Covenants 100, 138. I read this over and over and over and over, President Joseph F. Smith's vision, especially verses 58 and 59, the dead who repent will be redeemed through obedience to the ordinances of the house of God after they have paid the penalty of their transgressions. So it's not like they're off free here, but they can repent. They can make that choice or wash clean, shall receive a reward according to their works, for they are heirs of salvation. So the next question I had is, okay, uh, I, I feel like the second estate has got to continue into the spirit world if you can still repent there. And, and so I, I wanted documentation of that, and it took me quite a long time to find it. <laughs> and, but Neil Maxwell, in his book, The Promise of Discipleship, uh, says the spirit world about the spirit world, we tend to overlook the reality that the spirit world and paradise are part, really, of the second estate. God provides in the spirit world a continuum of mortality's probation, the great opportunity for all. Yay! This is what I wanted. This is what I believed. What, what sense would there be to have any missionary work over there if they couldn't repent, if they couldn't still have the atonement you know, help them to keep progressing if that was their desire and, and so on. President Marion G. Romney, I found, also said uh, he defines second estate as the mortality we are now experiencing and our sojourn in the spirit after we die. And is that not the most hopeful thing you can imagine for people that see their children or other people they love that died without all the, you know, everything all in order? Yeah, regardless of suicide, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, for anybody. Like I had an aunt and uncle, greatest people in the world, never went to church, never had anything to do. They were both baptized. It was little, but they, you know, but but what what was going to happen to them? They never did any of the church stuff, you know. That was very comforting to me, even for thinking about, you know, their sins of omission. Well, and, and, and to a certain extent, we look to God as this great person of justice and mercy. And it's hard for people to sometimes see justice and mercy when you deal with suicide. What, what role do each one of these play in, some, in someone's decision? And that's just one of the many questions that people have and that, that, that makes suicide such a complex issue. Oh, no kidding. So, so mainly the, the complexity comes from a variety of other questions that come to the surface that just beg for answers. There's a, a void that people just need to fill, as you kind of even talked about mm-hmm. with yourself. So what are some of the other questions that people might ask, uh, specifically the ones that, meant, that that you mentioned in your book, After My Son's Suicide? What are some of the questions that come to people's mind? Uh, that my Both of my books are based on all these questions, and some of them, of course, are things like, 
Why does God allow such things to happen? Why didn't he prompt even one of his loved ones to rescue the one he, he died? Why didn't he prompt me to go over there that day, you know? Where, where are they now? What's it like in the spirit world? What hope can we have for them? How can I process my grief and anger and guilt and blame so I can move on and rebuild my life? What resources are available to help me? So many questions, and I just dealt with every one of these head-on and, and uh, looked for years for answers and then shared the best answers I found in, in regard to all of the questions. And and uh, going back to what we were just talking about, about all the spirit world stuff and the doctrine, yeah. I have, you know, a whole other page of resources of things that I found to, to document all that. And so it, it's just been a, a wonderful journey for me to learn all these things. Yeah. Well, one, one of the criticisms that people have made, some people have made about the LDS Church is that some of the rules, some of the teachings even contribute to a spiritual or social guilt that in some ways encourages or persuades one to become suicidal. So first off, with your own personal experience and understanding what you've studied and read, what merit is there in any such an assertion uh, in, in, in regard to those rules? And then second, what is an answer that you found through your own experience to such a position, encountering people that feel that way? Well, the, basically, I strongly feel that that whole assumption is false. Why? Because the only thing that can um, could possibly have any merit in that at all is if your misunderstanding of church teachings or doctrines were so great that it, it would create all this unhealthy guilt. But appropriate guilt itself is, is just not a contributing factor to depression or suicidal feelings because healthy guilt is just short-term and simply motivates us to change and, and repent and progress. But inappropriate guilt, which is always attended by a lack of understanding of the atonement, is a tool of the adversary to stop our progress and make us miserable like he is. So really, it's all depending on which voice you're listening to, the spirit of truth or the spirit of the adversary that's going to tell you all these lies, that there is no hope for you and that you should, you know, you're just, you can't keep on going because of, of what you're doing that's wrong and so on. But what what really we need, of course, is just this constant... Uh, enlightenment through the Holy Ghost, and this is the problem with suicidal thinking, is that uh, both major depression and uh, drug addiction tends to mask the feelings of the Holy Ghost. And, and when those feelings are not coming through loud and clear because our receptor is kind of out of whack, then the, it seems like that the adversary, who is no gentleman, he just plows right in and, and puts all these negative, horrible thoughts sure. into a person's mind. And they start thinking that they're reality. They don't, they're not able to see the difference between truth and what's not true. So your experience, perhaps with depression associated with this, but specifically with your son and his depression, you feel that that depression was essentially a mute button. For the spirit, because absolutely okay, and it's it's kind of like I, at one point I I talk about spiritual starvation. If a person is not reading scriptures, not praying, not doing the things that their soul knows is right, and then they get into alcohol and drugs, which just uh, Boyd K. Packer's talked about how those things just kind of cover up the spirit, so we can't hear it. 
you're you're starving spiritually. You're not getting the light and truth, and and that's what causes the depression. It's certainly not the true doctrines of the of the church. Well, not everybody that has depression is on drugs. No. So okay. depression alone is plenty to mute the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> I have one of the most righteous women I've ever known. Uh, I have a good friend that has had severe suicidal depression, and the more good things she did, the worse she felt because it wasn't working. And she would get really angry because she was going to the temple more, reading scriptures more, doing everything she could to serve more, going to church more, and feeling worse and worse and worse about herself. So the the depression, this dysfunctional brain, is plenty enough to make it feel horrible by itself. Well, I'm I'm kind of curious. How does someone like that then— move on? How do they continue well, going? Well, that's really an interesting thing. This woman that I'm talking to happens to be my editor. Oh. <laughs> and and her, this, uh, this, com- this factors that contribute to major depression chart that is in my book uh, was, is what she created because she became a behavioral health specialist and worked with suicidal people in the psych ward at the hospital. It took years of uh, treatment and medication, and many times she wanted to give up, but somehow she says that that it, at times when she really was intent on killing herself, she, something would stop her, and, uh, and she eventually was able to find the right mix. And this is what discourages depressed people, is if they don't find the right medication, the right therapy, right away, they start feeling unfixable. Mm. And and uh, but she was able to eventually to find the right thing. She still has periods of depression, but not suicidal. And she's an amazing, amazing person. I just ha- have great high regard for her. So and, uh, you've you've referenced this before, but you talk about this aching question of sin. Uh, this this seems to allude to the the looming and ominous question of eternal condition of the individual whose whose soul commits suicide. So this seems to be a common question that people have. What comfort were you able to find on this question? Well, I think we've pretty well covered that. We've, we've, you know, all those resources that I was telling you about. Another one is the Infinite Atonement by, by Callister. Uh, Elder Callister of the 70s. Mm-hmm. And he says things like, The redeeming powers of the Savior reach forward to reach the spirits of the dead just as readily as they stretch back to premortal life. And then he quotes 1 Corinthians, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable, and that our hope in Christ never need to end. And then things like Lorenzo Snow's quote, where he says that um, there are few indeed who do not gladly receive the gospel in the spirit world because circumstances there will be a thousand times more favorable. Think about that. Illness like mental illness, addiction, those are things of the flesh, of mortality. When you get in the spirit world, you carry with you the spirit that you have that's the real true spirit. And when when they get over there and they can think clearly, they can have the gospel presented to them in absolute clarity. And I can just see my son saying, oh, so that's it. Why, of course. And I know that, that, that when it was presented to him like that, that, that he was one of those that that uh, said, yeah, let's go for it, you know. Many more books have been written about uh, this kind of thing. Jane Ann Morgan Payne, Where is Our Hope for Peace, The Resource Guide for LDS Families. There's just lots of good resources out there. Unless you've approached this issue yourself, it seems as one of those things that's unempathizable. 
And, and, <laughs> and that's in my own word. I know that's not a real word. Uh, but meaning, there's no matter how much a, a man tries to empathize with a woman giving birth, it's just not something you can truly appreciate. So I think similarly, unless someone has experienced suicidal feelings or someone around them who has committed suicide, it almost seems as if any attempt to empathize can be taken as an insult. So is empathy not the right course for someone that's that's looking to someone who has either had a family member commit suicide or someone who is suicidal? What is the right approach if empathy is not it? Well, first of all, the best way to empathize is to treat the subject of suicide with the same objectivity and sympathy as the death of any loved one um, that dies of any disease. Because in, in many ways, you can look at suicide as a as it, it, it was caused by a disease, even though the disease was mental. In the Salt Lake Tribune, um, Michael Calm, who was past president of the Utah Psychiatric Association, wrote a piece called Struggle with Mental Illness is Also Valiant. And he talked about that in the same newspaper, the same day, in the obituary section, uh, it, there was a line that said, died after a valiant struggle with breast cancer, and an article on Meriwether Lewis in the face section that said the idea of besmirching his memory by saying he committed suicide is not a very positive image of his personality and accomplishments. What's wrong with this picture? Plenty. How is, that, how is it that someone dying after struggling with the dread disease of cancer is seen as valiant, while someone dying after struggling with the dread disease of depression is seen as having a besmirched memory. So he concluded with this interesting quote, it's time for us now in the 21st century to know what, what they knew 200 years ago. A disease, a mental illness, does not define who a person is. A person is ultimately his hopes, his aspirations, his courage, and his actions. These should never be confused with his disease. So the most important thing to remember is this. A person is not his illness. The spirit identity overrides all other factors and will continue even after death. And helping survivors remember this real person beneath the disease that killed them or killed the loved one, it can be the most helpful. But there's something that we've kind of missed talking about, too, that I've just got to quickly go back and tell you about. Yeah. And that is that... In a, in a course for survivors, and, and, and survivors are usually referred to as those that are left in the family, and not the ones that attempted and then survived it, although in my book I often refer to them as grievers because there's a little confusion about that. But uh, in, in a Reader's Digest article, um, it made it very clear about this course that was taught showing that the improper functioning of the brain, not the situation, and that is what people have in common when uh, those that have completed suicide have in common. And millions suffer from depression and, and addiction independently and don't take their lives. And millions have unbelievable trials and heartbreak and are still alive. And uh, we just, it, it's like we are always looking for someone to blame or something to blame or something to pin it on, but it's always a combination of factors. And um, this article said that 
uh, a combination of factors, physiological, psychological, environmental, and genetic, can sometimes converge at a critical moment to push someone over the edge. The article called it kind of a brain attack. So a lot of times we could say that people that, that die of suicide uh, have a brain attack instead of a heart attack. And the basic premise of the article is that chemical imbalance and malfunction of the brain pay, play the biggest part in most suicides, that suicide victims die of an illness as surely as if they died of cancer. So, so we, we have to be careful of these wrong assumptions, and especially that somebody had a bad break and so they, they died of suicide. This isn't going to happen. It's, it, it's, it's a converging of many, many combined factors. And that chart that I was telling you about talks about all the different com- contributing factors and uh, how we have to look at all of those factors and recognize that, that uh, in general... Uh, there's, you look at anyone like Robin Williams, like my son, they're going to have factors in, in every area of that chart, you know, and, and how they all converge, and, and that that is, is what disrupts the brain chemistry and makes it so that they are vulnerable to that kind of thing, because most of us will do anything to stay alive. That's why, it, why it's so inexplicable and why we just can't understand it. And so it's safe to say that that nobody that's really in their right mind is going to do that. And we have to recognize that it's, it's caused by, you know, a lot of different dysfunctions in the brain. At this point, there are those that will look at, you give the example of a cancer survivor, someone who's almost given a hero status, right? Because they fought and they, they wanted to keep their life, but it was taken from them. Whereas some might see those that have a battle with depression and take their own life and not be able to put them in the same category because their life wasn't taken from them. They gave it. They made the choice. They made the choice. So it becomes equally dangerous, in my opinion, to say that someone is a hero in the same way as someone who fought cancer and eventually the cancer took their life versus someone who committed suicide and call them a hero because then it becomes... Oh, I don't think we'd ever call him a hero. I think it's the fought valiantly part that he w- that Michael Kahn was saying that we should... Um, we never know how many battles they fought and won before they lost this one. They, they, many of them are very, very valiant fighters that are trying in every way possible that they know, you know, to overcome these problems and and uh, sometimes that we wonder why, if depression and mental illness are largely treatable, why they don't get more help. And there's many um, reasons for that, too. You know, they might feel like they're unfixable. They may have tried so many ways and nothing worked. They might not have the, the uh, funds. They might not have the any, you know, ability to, to think clearly enough to, to go after what might be there that might help them. There's a section in your book that stood out to me as presenting a particularly unique challenge to those who survive the deceased, or I think you called them grievers. Uh, The section is entitled, Understanding and Forgiving the One Who Died. That seems like a profoundly difficult and and perhaps even previously unconsidered part of the healing process for those that go through suicide. So what does one have to forgive of those who have committed suicide? And did you see your son's suicide as some kind of attack on yourself. 
Well, absolutely not, but many loved ones are left to kind of clean up the, the mess of what's left. There might be children that need to be cared for. Uh, a wife will see the, uh, the wonder why their husband could do this to them and leaving them in such a, a difficult financial position. The finances of even the, the funeral costs can be huge. And my bishop said something that I think is the best answer to all of that is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he said that was the main scripture that kept coming to his mind, and that, that we have to recognize they didn't know what they do, what they did, and that they weren't doing it to us. And in, in chapter 9, I talk about how, at, at very best, a suicide leaves a legacy of emotional upheaval. We're left with all these what-ifs and and couldn't I have done something better? And even those uh, work where Brian, they hadn't even known Brian for very long were asking those questions. But um, in the book, I deal with how to let go of anger, hurt, and blame, and and that forgiving our loved one for choosing to leave us is is really opening our hearts to spiritual understanding and letting the Lord sweep all the bad feelings away as we keep our focus not on the questions but on the atonement and His great plan of redemption for the loved ones that we lost. And many find it easier to forgive their loved one when they begin to understand this extreme difficulty of living with a brain that doesn't function normally and that disrupts their ability to feel and think clearly. So that is is such an important thing to remember and that we just need to have more empathy for what they were going through. Because we don't know, right? Yeah, we just don't know. And that's the most important thing, too. Is, and I have uh, so many things in my book about the do's and don'ts of how to deal with people that have uh, had this in their life and how to deal with yourself. And um, I do believe that the aftermath of suicide, we all have a tailor-made opportunity to suspend judgment and extend charity. And such a situation is symbolic of all of life where we have not the tiniest fraction of data to process in regard to the whys and wherefores of other people's choices. That's one of the major lessons I've learned from this whole experience, that and remembering the great redemptive plan of the Savior for all of us. And where can people pick up a copy of your book? Well, all three of my books are available in both print and ebook formats on Amazon.com. After My Son's Suicide is available at Desert Book and some other bookstores. And more information can always be found on my website, DarlaIsaacson.com. And it's important to remember, if you're ever looking up my name, that it's a C.K. Isaacson and not a double letter Yeah, why don't, you, why don't you give the full spelling of it? Just yeah, so I-S-A-C-K-S-O-N. All right. Darla Isaacson is the author of Trust God No Matter What, and After My Son's Suicide, an LDS mother finds comfort in Christ and strength to go on. Please visit her website at DarlaIsaacson.com. Thank you again for coming in. Thank you for listening to this episode of Articles of Faith with your host, Nick Galetti. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org. Tune in each Monday for another episode of Articles of Faith. Thank you for listening.